So that creed that has been confessed by the Christian church uh, going back to the early fathers because it's apostolic doctrine, uh, at the time of the Reformation, uh, uh, those who, who did know it, many didn't know it at all, those who did know it typically could not tell you what it meant. Uh, there were even priests that couldn't tell you what it meant. And so uh, the Reformers... Uh, remember, they're not revolutionaries. It's really important to get our mind around that. They, uh, the early reformers are working from within the Western Church, the Roman Catholic Church. And in the beginning, they have no intention at all of leaving the Roman Catholic Church, but reforming it. And uh, little by little, that becomes impossible, particularly after the Council of Trent and the Roman Inquisition and uh, lots of power plays going on uh, throughout Europe, uh, kind of a long, interesting, but somewhat complicated story uh, that we often oversimplify. Uh, But bottom line is, they don't want to sever themselves from historic ancient Christianity. Uh, And and we ought not have that desire either. So continuing to confess the Apostles' Creed is really important. And that meant, though, that they needed to exposit the Creed and go through what it means line by line. And so question 26 does that for us. But did you notice in... In the answer in question 26, it says that the Father, which we talked about last week, uh, still upholds and rules them, being uh, heaven and earth, by his eternal counsel and providence. Thank you, Yolanda. So the question for us that we want to discuss today is what is providence? Providence. This is a word that has sadly fallen out of use amongst modern Christians. And it's an important word. If you walk up to somebody and you start talking about providence, most people are going to probably think you're talking about a city in Rhode Island, which is is actually named after the doctrine. But that's how stupid we've become. We've just lost our way on things. And uh, we, we want to regain this word. Uh, there's a lot of words that we want to retain uh, as modern Christians. Catholic is another one. We'll get, we'll get to that later. But providence is certainly one. It's something that we want to use uh, regularly. And the Heidelberg Catechism beautifully exposits what that means. So it basically, Lord's Day 10 is pausing on that line in the, in the creed what do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? And it's, it's giving us further detail about what this word providence is and why it's so important. And so let's go through those today. Uh, questions uh, 27, 28. No, just 27 and 28, sorry. Um, yeah, I'm always thinking 26, 27, 28 together. 27 and 28, because all three of them kind of go together. Uh, Question 27, what do you understand by the providence of God? Let's answer together. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us 
not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. And how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. All right, let's think about this. First of all, what is the providence of God? This is a, a beautiful uh, answer, and again, it's one of the, uh, the, the 10 or 15 questions that we say. These are probably the most important. If you're going to memorize a skeleton of the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, question 27 should definitely be there. Question 26 also. Uh, the word providence. R.C. Sproul laments the word providence has all but disappeared from the vocabulary of the contemporary Christian. It has become obsolete and archaic. This word that was once commonplace, indeed central to Christian expression, now seems doomed to the ash heap of useful verbiage. Very Sproul-like. Uh, he's right. He's absolutely right. And we need to gain it back. Uh, oftentimes, uh, if, you, and if you're new to uh, being Reformed, uh, you'll see Reformed people sometimes as they're writing an email to you and they're saying, well, you know, uh, we're, we will have the, the uh, service of lessons and carols on December 18th. And then they might put this in parentheses. Anybody ever seen that before? DV? No? Wow. You never got an email from me before. Uh, DV, you'll see a lot of times... Uh, uh, Reformed people put that on there. Uh, DV is actually initials that were used uh, even in legal documents uh, for hundreds of years, especially after the Reformation and in this country. Uh, it stands for, it's Latin, it stands for Deo. What do you think that means? God. <laughs> you all know it means God. It's like, but I don't want to say it in case I'm wrong. And uh, just, this is a class. It's okay. What do you think uh, this means? Volente. Any, any idea? That might be a little harder. Will. Very good. Yeah, if you've had Spanish or Italian or maybe Latin. God, it basically says God willing. DV is just God willing. In other words, luck doesn't control things. God controls things. And, uh, and so we recognize, even when we say something, my plans are such and such, God willing. Because the Apostle James tells us, you know, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. that that's all we mean when we, when we write DV is that there's not some force out there controlling us. Uh, there's not a thing called luck. Uh, rather, it's uh, God's will. Not, it's not legalistic. You don't have to write DV. But if it, you ever come across it, that's what it means. And uh, it's something that was used for quite a long time. Yeah, okay, so the question was, did you get, have you gotten luck out of your vocabulary? Right. Well, luck is a four-letter word, rhyming with another four-letter word. 
And uh, so, well, you all hear that word on a regular basis, and some of you probably say that word. Uh, so don't act like I did something unholy. Um, you know, the, the, but, but should we delete the word luck from our vocabulary? I'll confess to you, when I was a new, young, zealous, reformed Christian, uh, I was in the cage phase for a long time. I had various levels of cage phaseness. Maybe I'm still in the cage phase. I don't know. And, uh, but di- there's different levels and, and types of cage phasiness. And uh, boy, when I came across this and, and read all the history of of, the, of providence, what providence is, and God willing. Yeah, I didn't want my kids saying luck. You know, we were lucky. And, and so, you know, I tried to drill into them, my daughters, when they were about five or six. Remember, we're not lucky. You know, we can say we're blessed, or we can say that, you know, God has been kind. And it was out of a desire to uh, help them understand that there is no such thing as, as luck. You know, when, uh, you know, when you're saying, oh, please, 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 for the light not to turn red... Um, to whom are you saying please, please, please? The, you know, the forces in the universe to the man uh, controlling the light? No, there's only God. That's it. And his providence. So uh, we actually, for a while, said if you say luck, you had to do a chore in the house. It was totally legalistic and depressing. And uh, so I got away from that. Those were my Puritan days. I had black stockings, you know. I kind of, mmm, at Christmas and... I'm much more of an early reformer Anglican now. Uh, sorry? Praying for parking spaces? God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. So when you find a parking space, look, look at question 28. Look at question 28. We can be patient when things go against us. That guy took my parking space. Thankful when things go well. Oh, I found one right up by the door. And for future parking spaces, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. This affects everything in life. See, the problem is we, we tend to live like deists. We tend to live as if uh, you know, God isn't in control of even the small things. And uh, he's in control of everything. Uh, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink. When something goes wrong in life, it's not because God was sleeping on the job. God allowed that in your life. And he's using it even for your own good. And as we talked about last week, when we pray for our sanctification, that doesn't mean that, okay, you're going to get sanctification without any bumps. And uh, so again, where's our contentment? Is it in our comfort physically, financially, uh, or is it ultimately in Christ? And, uh, yeah, so he gives us other comforts, too. I mean, I'm comforted every morning when I turn on my espresso machine. And uh, I'm comforted by a lot of things in life. But we're to give God thanks for that. It doesn't come to us by luck. So, now, getting back to your question. So, well, you ask questions while I'm teaching. This is what happens. So I'm, I'm fine with it, but, uh, you know, this, it's fine. So you guys can all beat up John later. But, no, no, it's actually a very good question because we're going to get to that. It says not by chance. Everything comes to us not by chance or by dumb luck, but from his fatherly hand. And uh, so, you know, uh, pick anything, you know, some, the good or the bad. It comes to us not from a bad bounce of the ball or, well, that's just the way the cookie crumbles. Um, ultimately, that came to us uh, by the Lord and his providence. 
Yeah. So it's not wrong to say luck. And if you say luck in front of me, like, oh, man, he was lucky. You'll go, whoop, I said it in front of Pastor Brown. You know, uh, you know I, I, I know, I hopefully I know what you mean. Um, we use that as a term, don't we, uh, frequently in our vocabulary. However, there was a time when Christians wouldn't use that term so much, not, not the way that we use it today. And I do think that we, you know, especially with our kids, we have to be careful that we're, we're helping them understand that God is in control of all, you know, in his providence. Even sickness and disease and pain, even death, he allows these things. There's nothing outside of his control. And so luck is not a force. There is no such thing as luck. There's nothing. And uh, now I get what people mean when they say it. Right. Right. May the, I say, may the force be with you. So, right. Right. And honestly, I'll be, okay, that's, that's a good question. I try not to say good luck. Yeah. Um, may God bless you. May the Lord be with you. And guess what? That's used all over scripture and throughout the history of the church. But we, you know, we're afraid sometimes of sounding too pious. But honestly, I mean, that is one that I'd encourage you to try to veer away from. If you tell me, um, hey, good luck, you know, uh, with your, you know, book that you're writing right now. Um, you know, I, yeah, I'll just say, well, may the force be with you or something like that. I mean, it, it's just silly to me. I mean, there's no, I understand what you mean. I understand, and that's why we're in catechism. We have to, like, oh my God, is a violation of the third commandment. And just because it's used everywhere in society doesn't mean that we should use it. So, and it's not legalistic. It's that I think we have to be thoughtful with our speech. Uh, by your words, you'll be justified. By your words, you'll be condemned. And uh, we have to be thoughtful with what we're saying in our speech. And uh, so, yes. Uh, last question, then we, gotta, we need to move on. So, uh, That's a good question. Basically, it's superstition. It's that, you know, if I use these batting gloves, I've got a better chance at getting a hit than if I don't use these batting gloves. It's, it's meaningless. But see, all human beings are incurably religious because we've been made to worship God. We've been made in the image of God for him and his good pleasure, but sin frustrates that. So man has to find... Man is, by him talking about luck, what, what a, a human being is doing is he's basically uh, uh, making up a word that makes some sense of what, out of what he inherently knows to be true that there is a God in control of all things. And he's trying to make sense out of that, but it's frustrated by sin. And so this word, you know, the luck comes along. And so you might find something that gives you luck, but where does all that come from? It comes from man's desire, his, his, his God-given desire to worship God, and he recognizes that God is in control of all things. But that's all frustrated and suppressed because of his sin. That's why he worships things that aren't God. That's why you have religions all around the world, and temples and churches and everything. Even the atheist, he has a form of religion. Uh, and, and luck is just one of the outworkings of all that. That's why, I mean, we, we need to really try not to use the word in certain ways. Like a Christian saying to somebody else, hey, good luck. I mean, I know what you mean with that. 
you know, do well. I hope you do well. But good luck, I mean, think about it. Yeah, yeah, cross my fingers. You know. You know. Oh, I did it the wrong way. Do it the other way. Do it the other way. You know, it, it's, it's pagan. It's all pagan. So. Right. 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 Exactly, Yolanda. Exactly. Yolanda, did everybody hear that? Yolanda's saying that basically, and you, and you see that it's prevalent in places like Mexico. Yeah. Uh, it, it put, it's putting your faith in something else. Well, I got to wear my red, like she used the example of using my, my, wearing my red sweater today, you know, to bring me good luck. Or I got my lucky hat on. Or I got, there's no power in that thing. There's no power. Just because you hit a home run when you were wearing, uh, and this, professional baseball players do this. Just because you hit a home run in clutch, you know, in, when you're in a time you needed, your, your team needed you, and you hit a home run while you were wearing dirty underwear, doesn't mean there was power in those underwear. And you have professionals who do this. Okay, and, and uh, baseball players are the worst of them all. You watch the little routines they go through in the batter's box or the, because uh, the, it's such a mental and frustrating game that doesn't, sometimes doesn't make sense that they will, they will rely upon superstition. Okay, we're, we're, this is an interesting conversation, but I do want to expand in the time that we have on what uh, providence is. Uh, so what are we talking about? What, it, what exactly is providence? We're talking about God's interaction and intervention with the world that he has made. Providence is the doctrine that arises from texts like Acts 17 and Ephesians 1, where Paul says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. How did you get that job? In God's providence, you were in the right place at the right time. And God had foreordained for that to happen. How come you don't have the job that you would really like? Because in God's providence, you are not the person for the job right now. This is what, and this has a lot to do with contentment, is understanding providence. You know, we get so frustrated because providence isn't going the way we want it to, because God's not following the lines that we gave him for our play. He's supposed to be there to fit into my life movie. And uh, he's not acting out the role that I want him to. I have to keep saying, cut, cut, cut. No, no, no. It doesn't go like that. <laughs> and uh, that's why we're often frustrated. God preserves, this is what the Bible tells us, his creatures. And he is active in the world, directing all things to their appointed end. And that's what question 27 is getting at. Uh, that is the way in which God describes or the Bible describes God's power. It's omnipotent, it's omnipresent, it's sovereign. And he is constantly on his throne over all creation. Jeremiah 23, verses 23 and 24, he says, Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God far off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? And, and this is what Paul made clear uh, to the Epicureans and the Stoics in Acts chapter 17. Remember in Acts 17, what, what was happening in that chapter? Anybody remember? He, he is, and he's going all around the Mediterranean, planting churches. And he ends up in Greece. 
And he ends up in Athens. And Athens is the center for philosophy. Okay? I mean, when we think of philosophers, the great philosophers, uh, you know, the, the, the greatest early philosophers, they were all Greek. You know, Plato and Socrates, Aristotle, they're all Greek. And so in Athens, this is the center of learning and thought and education and discussion. And they had this place called Mars Hill, Areopagus is the word in in Greek. And that's where everybody would gather together to discuss whatever was the latest thing. Uh, Mike Horton likes to refer to it as the Oprah Winfrey show of the first century. That's fair enough, but I think that it was a far more intellectual Oprah Winfrey show than the drivel that we see in our society. Um, You know, it was the the place, it was sort of the Oprah Winfrey show meets the Academy. That would be more like it. And, uh, but it was whatever was popular. They wanted to be cutting edge. And so Paul ends up there, and you have two big groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans were a philosophical camp that followed the teachings of Epicurus, a philosopher who lived 4th, 3rd century B.C., and basically taught that pleasure is the chief end of all life, and that we should strive to be free from pain, from passion and fear, by enjoying the good things of this life. Uh, They believed that the gods really had nothing to do with the life of men. Uh, They're they're off having their own pleasure. Uh, Let's just enjoy the good life as we have it now. Then you had the Stoics, and they were followers of another 4th, 3rd century B.C. philosopher, Zeno. And they believed that God is basic, was basically the world's soul, okay, very common belief even today, and that people should therefore try to live in complete harmony with the world's soul, with nature. And so they were total pantheists. You know, pantheists means that uh, everything is God. Uh, a monotheist, one god. Polytheist, many gods. Pantheist, everything is God. Nature is God. Get in touch with nature. Uh, nothing like that is popular today, right? Obviously, that's the worldview of most people walking down the street. And so they saw no distinction between creature and, and creator. Now, to both of those groups, Paul speaks of the creator God and his providence. And contrary to what the Epicureans believed, Paul says that the creator God has, quote, determined allotted periods and the boundaries of everyone's dwelling place, and that he is actually not far off from each one of us. Then, contrary to the Stoics and what they believed, Paul says that the creator God is the one who made the world and everything in it. He's distinct from his nature, from uh, creation. Being Lord of heaven and earth, and that he does not live in temples made by hands. So he refutes both camps. And to both groups, he quotes, this is what's so great about that passage, he quotes pagan Greek poets with whom they were familiar in order to show that whether or not these poets even realized it, they said things that were true when understood in the correct sense, such as, in him we live and move and have our being. That was a quote from a, a, a pagan poet. So he was familiar with uh, the writings that were popular in those days, and so he, he approaches them right where they're at. It's brilliant evangelism, 
recognizing uh, that he's got to reach them with his own presuppositions. But he brings out the doctrine of providence in that speech. And he does it in order to help his hearers understand who God truly is, that he upholds all things as it were by his hand, heaven and earth with all creatures and governs them. Providence sets straight the errors of Epicureanism and Stoicism that are prevalent today so that we can understand that God is the creator and sustainer of this universe. So getting back to our discussion about luck, uh, well, if, w- would that be more Epicurean or Stoic? It's Stoic. Why? Because the Stoics believed that the earth is basically the soul of God. You get in touch with nature. You get in harmony with nature. This is what, this is what yoga is all about. Now, I'm not against yoga if you're just trying to stretch and get more limber, and, you know, that's awesome. Um, but a lot of it, if you've done yoga classes, you know this is a little creepy, some of the things that they say. And you've got to kind of find one that detaches themselves from all the spiritual elements of it. It's stoicism. It's pagan religion. It's getting in touch and harmony with nature. If you go to Yosemite, for example, you go up to Tuolumne, one of the most beautiful places you can find in California. Beautiful sunsets at Tuolumne Meadows. Beautiful. And you'll see all these kind of neo-hippies coming out right at sunset. And they all do their yoga right in front of the sun. You know, and you know, the, the, the silly shallow, non-theological way is to scoff at them and say, oh, you know, liberals, granolas. No, 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 no. Their philosophy and what they're doing overtly is coursing through the minds of our whole society, even conservatives. So don't take that route because it's actually not doing any good. Is just creating a, 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 an irrelevant argument between camps. It's deeper than that, than a shallow culture war. It is theological, and it is the forces of evil that have captivated the hearts and minds of our modern world. And we just think, oh, well, it's no big deal, it's just yoga. But we got to be careful, really careful that we're not talking about getting in touch with the world's soul and in harmony with nature. No, God puts you to rule over nature. You are made in his image. The sun is not made in his image. The tree is not made in his image. And the doctrine of providence actually helps us to begin to understand this, that God is in control of all things. God is, not nature. And so Stoicism is very much alive and well today. Um, today we have you know, competing errors. There's you know, New Age pantheism, and then there's also deism, which would be like Epicureanism. That, well, yeah, there's a God, and he's out there somewhere. But, you know, I mean, he doesn't really have that much to do with us today. He just wants us to be happy and, you know, try our best and enjoy life. And, you know, if I'm sleeping with my girlfriend to whom I'm not married... Um, you know, I don't think God has such a problem with it because, you know, he wants us to be happy and I try to do good. That's another worldview that's common in society. 
It's, a de- it's a deism, that God is far off out there. It's Epicureanism. Those two worldviews, Epicureanism and Stoicism, are the prevalent worldviews of all the people you work with and all the people you are on the freeway with and your neighbors and even people who say they're Christians. And this is why this doctrine is so important because it refutes both of those. This is more than a Christian and Reformed way of saying luck. This is an understanding that God is in control of all things. And that he interacts. That he's not far off, as the deist or Epicurean says. Hey, just do your own thing. Be happy. And he's not earth or the universe, as the Stoic says. God is, in, God is separate, distinct, from his creation yet in control of his creation. He upholds his creation and rules his creation with his almighty and everywhere present power so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come to me, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. It destroys those two demonic worldviews that compete with the truth. Um, so before I, I go on to the question of whether or not this makes God responsible for evil, which maybe we'll have to take up next week, uh, because if he's in control of all things, why did he, make, why did he allow 9-11 to happen? But are there any questions before I move on? You're not going to have me do a statistics. Uh, there's a reason I went into theology. I'm terrible. I'm terrible at math. I could never make it as a dispensationalist. I couldn't figure out those weeks of Daniel. So, go ahead. I'm kidding. Yeah. You mean a magical formula that they, they can't understand? Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, in, in, in I mean, in a sense, it'd be it'd be more Epicurean if you're saying that. Well, I mean, if there's a God, Epicurean goes the route. Epicureanism goes the route of agnosticism and atheism. Personally, I don't believe there is a true atheist. That has ever lived. You, you know, there is only people who suppress the truth and tell themselves there is no God. Um, but be that as it may, um, it would be more Epicurean to say that, well, this just somehow happened by chance. Now, I mean, I would imagine that maybe in the realm of uh, statistics and, you know, your world, you know, of algorithms and supercomputers and all that stuff, uh, that there's probably terminology that gets used to fit a certain category. Um, So I want to be careful there. 
But in, just in general, talking about, you know, well, God did it, you know, this, because we can't explain it. Um, well, okay, that is true. That is true. If grandpa was healed of his cancer without chemotherapy, and we say God did it, well, yeah, God did it because guess what? Nobody else did it. God's in control of all things. But if grandma was healed of her cancer through nine months of radiation, guess what? God did it. God did it. God did both of them. God does everything. And even the thing that happened by chance. You know, I, I used to have, I used to drive a Toyota. I drive Hondas now for reasons, many reasons. One being that those hubcaps, those cheap plastic hubcaps, they put on the Toyotas. You ever seen that? And then they, they're not underneath the lug nut. And so they, they fall off. And then you come out of the grocery store and you see your car and it looks like it's got a black eye. It's, you, oh, no. No, no, no. Not, they're like 50 bucks. Like a piece of plastic. Driving back. Oh, there it is. <laughs> there it is. Down this road and some kind soul stuck it up against the, uh, you know, the, that's why you see those up against, don't touch those. They belong to somebody. If you see them around town, Okay? Don't let your kids play with them. Uh, somebody bought a Toyota and they're suffering. And uh, did I find that by chance? Well, okay, in one sense, you can say, oh, by chance or by dumb luck. Or I was lucky today. I found my hubcap that went spinning off when I made that left hand turn too hard. But in fact, God is in control of all things. So nothing comes to me by chance, as question 27 says. I mean, that's how I don't understand those categories generally. Yes. Nothing's by chance. Right. Right. That's correct. Yes. All things are in the realm of what God does. There's nothing outside of the realm of what God does. If there's anything outside of the realm of what God does, then there's something greater than God, and God's not God. There is nothing that happens outside of God's control. If there is, we need to go find that God and worship him. And, but that has, there is no revelation of that. So, let me get to, there was another question over here. I want to see it. <laughs> You know, I, I, I mean, what, what do you mean by that? You know, what do you mean by that you, saw, that you make your own luck? Well, sure, right. No, I mean, you know, and this is, again, this is where we go, we swing too far sometimes. It doesn't mean that, okay, everything happens by God's control, so therefore I can just go walk out in the street in traffic. Because guess what's going to happen if I walk out on the street in front of traffic? I'm going to get hit by a car. And, and, and that happened in God's providence. You know, uh, so it doesn't make us uh, 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 agents with no responsibility. And this is where the mystery comes in. How can God be sovereign, and yet I am still responsible? And that's what we're, we'll get to that next week, because we're going to run out of time. The doctrine of concurrence, which is a subset of this, of providence. So there was another question. Yeah, Angela.
Right. Right. Yeah, bottom line, I mean, the, the, the truth is, is that most forms of Pentecostalism are, have a, a heavy shot and dose of superstition. That's just, that's just true. And uh, so, yeah, it, it, it typically denies, first of all, the sovereignty of God. And, and the thing is, is that God has revealed himself as sovereign. We don't get to say what God is like. We have to go with what the Bible has said. And, you know, we don't make this stuff up. I mean, we have to go by his revelation. And he has revealed that he rules and governs all things in his providence. And uh, because I understand that in Pentecostalism, the, you know, there's various forms of that, of course. But uh, one of the things is, yeah, to, to name something and claim it. And you're doing some kind of spiritual warfare and doing that. And you can actually, in some forms of Pentecostalism, increase, you know, your own health and wealth. I remember talking to a guy saying that, well, if I say I feel like I'm getting sick, then I am going to get sick. And just ridiculous things like that, you know, which means that the Apostle Paul must not have been a very holy guy. So then there's another question, and we're going to move on. Yeah. Uh, so are you saying that, like, we should live our lives thinking that every little thing has a purpose, like, even, like, a small event has a purpose? Or, like, is it fine just thinking about these things that happen, but no apparently this happen? That is a hugely important question. And he's asking, should we live our lives with the understanding that every little thing has a purpose? Okay, we should live, I'm saying we should live our lives with the understanding that God is in control of all things. And why do I say that? Because that's what he said. If the Bible's true, it says that God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass and that all things are worked according to the counsel of his will. Now, that's either true or false. If it's true, that means he's in control of everything. That means that everything he has foreordained. That does not mean, however, that I should try to figure out every little thing, what the meaning is and what it's teaching me. When I lost my hubcap on the Toyota, which did change my life because I won't buy Toyotas anymore until they change that. Uh, But when that happened, I didn't say, what's God trying to teach me? What does this mean? It means something. No, it's not a sign out of heaven. It just means God is in control of all things. I have no idea why that happened that day. I have no idea. Although now I'm using it as an illustration, so maybe that's one thing. But there's all kinds of things that happen we have no idea. And we may get sick. You 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 may get bad news from the doctor. Don't try to figure out what God is teaching you. Let me give you an example. One of the greatest examples of providence in the Bible, in the Old Testament, probably the greatest story of providence in the Old Testament, is Joseph. Now, this gets right to what you're asking. So picture Joseph, okay? Late Genesis, you know, 37 and on. Youngest brother of 11 brothers. Benjamin comes later. Ten brothers hate him because he keeps having these dreams about Father Jacob and his brothers bowing down to you. If you've got older brothers, you don't go around saying that kind of stuff, right? And uh, he keeps talking about it. He's like, I keep having these dreams, these crazy dreams. And, you know, the moon and the star and, and the sun, they're all bowing down to me. They're so sick of this guy, so fed up with this guy, that they say, we've got to get rid of him. Because dad, Jacob, loves him. Gives him the beautiful coat, et cetera, et cetera. So you know the story. They beat him up one day. 
They throw him down a pit. And they leave him there. Some of them say, we're going to let him die. And uh, you remember Reuben saying, no, 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 let's not do that. Let's sell him to these slave traders. Midianites. The Midianites were traveling which direction? North or south? Because it makes all the difference in the world. They're traveling south. Down to Egypt. And there goes Jacob. In the ancient world, there's no telephone. There's no mail system. There's no GPS. This is where I'm at. As soon as he's on that wagon, and, he's, and he sees Judah in the distance, it's gone. You're on another planet in the ancient world. Ends up in Potiphar's house. Uh, has a new life. He got sold as a slave. Potiphar trusts him. He's working hard. Uh, Potiphar's wife likes this Hebrew. Wants to sleep with him. How can I do this thing before my God? And uh, she keeps making advances. He runs out. She takes his clothes. Finally, she's so mad at him. She says, this guy tried to rape me. They throw him in prison. Here I am again. Now then, what happens? He's in prison. Two guys are there from Pharaoh. Uh, He's in Egypt. And uh, the butler, the baker, and they're both going to be killed. They start having dreams. And he starts telling them what the dreams mean. One of you is going to die. The other one's going to be restored. Hey, but when you get back to Pharaoh, tell him about me. I'm down here for no good reason. Ends up in Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh starts having dreams. Seven ugly cows eating up seven fat cows. They say, hey, I remember a guy in prison. Oh, I forgot all about him. They go and they get him. They bring him to Pharaoh. He says, yeah, I, the, the living God will tell you the dream. It's seven years of famine that are, that are going to come after seven years of plenty. What you should do, Pharaoh, is store up during the seven years of plenty so that you can have enough to feed your nation. You're my man. Makes him second in command of the most powerful nation in the world at that time. You know the story. Famine hits. After those seven years of plenty, where Joseph made sure that there was so much grain, there was enough grain to feed almost the whole world. And the 12 tribes are part of that famine. And so years pass. And Jacob sends his sons. Send, go down to Egypt. I heard they've got food. We're going to die. Goes down there, does the deal. Joseph doesn't tell them who he is. He looks like an Egyptian. He's speaking the Egyptian language. They don't know. They have no idea. You know the story. And uh, the story is they survive. And then when he gives his identity away, so dramatic, and they're all freaked out. He's going to kill us. In his grace, he says, "No, come near me. You meant it for evil." But God made, uh, meant it for good. Now, let's back up to your question. When he's beat up and he's thrown down the pit, does he know what God's doing in his life right then? No! Should he try to rack his brain? Oh, I should have said more prayers. I should have done more device. I should have memorized my Hebrew catechism. Oh, you know, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. I was lusting after this prayer. I stole a piece of candy. No, he has no clue. Does he know what's going on when he's on the Midian truck? No. What if it had been going north? What would have happened? Well, we can assume the famine would have hit. The 12 tribes would have starved. No tribe of Judah. No David. No Jesus. No Jesus. No salvation. 
no salvation, no heaven. It all has to do with God working all things according to his plan. But along the way, you have no way of knowing what he's doing. And that's why don't try to read providence as it's unfolding. That is one of the most common mistakes that Christians make all the time. We think we're being spiritual by trying to figure out what God's teaching me or doing. You don't know. You don't know. You may never know. Now, in the case of Joseph, he could look back and see. He didn't know that for years and years later. And there are times when you can look back and see God's hand in something. But while you're going through it, our job is simply to be faithful to God, to believe his promises, to trust in his promises. Those are the only, that's the only lighthouse in the fog when, when things have gone awry. And remember the story of Joseph. All right, we have to stop there, and, and uh, we'll pick up next week with the doctrine of concurrence. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the time you've given us. We pray you would bless us the rest of this day, this holy day, with rest. And we thank you, Father, that you do uphold and govern all things according to your power and your providence. And because of that, we can be thankful and rejoice when things go well, and we can be patient when things go awry. And we can trust the future to you. For we ask us in Jesus' name. Amen.